Ah, yes. Welcome back to Operation Brewery, episode two of this uh, season three episode on growth. When I started thinking about who to interview for this season, the first person I thought of was Jamie Cook from Stone and Wood. He's someone um, who everyone in the industry looks up to, and he's a real pioneer of our industry. Stone and Wood are as good a brand as you can possibly think of in the Australian craft beer scene, and he was super generous uh, in saying yes and spending a couple of hours with me this morning, giving me a tour around the Byron Bay Brewery, and we snuck up to one of the offices to record this podcast. Let's not delay it any further. I give you Jamie Cook from Stone and Wood. All right, Jamie Cook, welcome to Operation Brewery. Oh, thanks for having me, Dan. It's been great, uh, great to be involved. I'll, I'll say to begin with, thanks for doing this. You were the first person to say yes, which I think says a lot. Um, I guess the, the theme of the podcast is around growth, but before we get to those questions around growth, can you take me back to when you first thought of the idea of starting Stone and Wood? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, um, well, I guess the kernel of the ideas lived in my head for many, many, many years, um, but really started to get seriously thinking about it probably back in 2003. Um, uh, and at that time, um, I just led a team to relaunch Matilda Bay for CUB um, and on that team was Brad Rogers and Ross Jurisic. Um, right, you were all working there. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd worked at Matilda Bay way back in the late 80s um, and then when CUB bought it in the early 90s, um, I got sucked into the CUB Vortex oh. um, and then ended up in uh, Melbourne um, many years later and in the early 2000s, specialty brewing as it was called then or specialty beer had started to grow again after the sort of, you know, it fell in a hole in the mid sort of, 90s um little creatures had launched and were growing quite strongly yeah. james squires had grown started and were growing quite strongly and cub really had nothing to sort of throw at that market so they knew i was at matilda bay back in the day when they bought that business uh so they dragged me in and said you know we need to do something in this space what should we do you're the man with the knowledge in this area so um i put together a strategy that pretty much dictated we launched uh, relaunch Matilda Bay yep. um, as a separate business unit within Foster's. And I said, well, the only way we're going to get this to work is if you give me a bre- small brewery, a small team, um, and space between us and the senior management because senior management being what they will, they'll just squash it. They, mm. they won't want to see it succeed. And the moment it is successful, they'll want to get their hands all over it. So so we launched that business and within 18 months, um, we'd taken over uh, the lead in the, in the category from squires um, and creatures. Right. So we sort of, Brad, Ross and I sort of at the time thought, I'd worked with Ross before at CUB in marketing and I'd, and I'd worked with Brad before, back when I was in Brisbane, we um, rebranded the Sanctuary Co-Brewery where Brad was working uh, oh, on wow, the Gold okay. Coast. Yeah. Um, and to Masthead and was quite successful little little restart at that business. So I, bought, I dragged Brad in as my head brewer and Ross basically led the sales team and after a couple of years of doing that we went shit we've just done this for fosters we really should be (laughs) doing this for ourselves yeah um and the market was we could see the market was primed and was going to was going to go in that direction for a long time so we talked about it for a a number of years um and then really uh it was a fateful day on april the 1st 2006 um, where we sat down in a cafe in melbourne uh and the idea of the meeting was we're either going to 
stop talking about this and never do it, and won't do it and never talk about it again or we're going to commit to doing it today and we'll get on with it. Right. Um, and, yeah, so it really got serious on that morning and um, two, two and a bit years later we ended up uh, starting brewing. That's very cool. Um, so when you had that conversation, was it like, okay, we're going to go and brew a beer or was it like we're going to build a, a, a brand? Yeah, no, it was very much around building a business. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, you know, then over the next couple of years, as as we got towards startup, the business plan evolved and we got to a point where, we, yeah, we really wanted to build a regional brewing business. That was, our, that was our thinking. We looked at a whole bunch of locations, but we always kept coming back to the, the sort of circle between Ballina and Noosa. Yeah. Um, you think back in the mid-2000s there, there was hardly any breweries in that, in that geography. Mm. Um, and the migration was moving that way. Um, so we just felt, you know, there was a lot of things in the right, heading in the right direction. And we're all from southeast Queensland originally. So yeah. So it was a good opportunity for us to get home and um, back near home and um, do something in a great place to live. Nice. What was your original setup like? So, so were you straight into the brewery or did you contract brew? Or Yeah, no, no. We went straight, straight into putting our um, round things on the line. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, we went straight with a 25 hectolitre brew house, um, uh, and at the, at that time we ordered that kit. We hadn't really started even brewing beer. And you um, knew where it was going to go. Yeah, we had a we had a location, uh, the old shed in Baronia. We'd found. I mean, our original plan was to put a little brew pub into Byron um, and start with that, and then build the wholesale business off that and then expand to a bigger production facility. I'm guessing they didn't let you do that? Uh, we just couldn't find the location, right. you know, and, and after after a year or so of really seriously looking at a couple of things, we just got to a point where, shit, we just got to get on with this. Um, so forget forget step one, let's just go to phase phase two and go to the manufacturing f- production facility and wholesale. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so we found a shed big enough to put our kit in and then, um, yeah, ordered a 25 hectare uh, brew house um, and went to the bank knocked on the door and luckily we were probably six months before the GFC and managed wow. to get managed to get money out of the bank um, wow. put our houses on the line and okay. um, yeah. went for it wow so so originally no investors just just equity on the houses and yeah we had we had a fourth we, we have a fourth founding shareholder um, who's a publican here in town yeah. so um, the three of us developed the plan and the idea and then we realized when we set once we settled on byron it was pretty much um a great opportunity to bring another strategic investor in who had something to bring to the table apart from cash right so tom mooney who's one of the local publicans here brought in you know distribution from day one so he has two pubs in town here he has the bangalow hotel the nimbin hotel the yamba hotel um so it was immediate distribution for us. Uh, so you'll be a win to those pubs straight away. Yep. Wow. Yep. And and it's the northern and the rails. Is yep. it in Byron? Yeah. Yeah. So so yeah. So th- there was only the four of us, but we all put the same amount of cash on the table. Right. Um. So and apart from cash, we brought our you know our own collective IP. So um mm. you know the three of us have complementary skills, and Tom brought the distribution. So so yeah. And was Tom ever working in the business? No. No, no. He's pretty much been a silent, silent partner along the way. Obviously, his pubs have been very on the front foot, yeah. promoting our beer over the years. Um, yeah, it's a big leg up if you want to try to get into venues in an area if the, if the the bigger pubs in town have already got you on tap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that helped. So yeah, so it was all in, um, and not a huge amount of cash, big amount of debt. Um, but do you mind me asking how much? Yeah, it was only one hundred twenty-five k each. So um, right, you wow. know. Uh, so, so not a huge amount of money, um, mm. 
but yeah, we borrowed over a mill um, and uh, built the brewery. And uh, while the brewery was being built in Canada, um, Brad started playing around with a beer and um, on a little home brew kit we bought. And by the time the kit arrived, he was ready to ready to roll. And that was the the it was called Draft Ale, was it at the time, which is now Pacific Ale? Yeah, the first beer we brewed was Draft Ale. Yeah, so um, and Brad brewed that uh, at home in his gar- in his shed up and up up on his up on his property out the back here. Uh, it was um, the first brew we, we put in that kit uh, here in Baronia, down in Byron. Um, the first brew was about 85% right. Yeah. Um, it was pretty out there weird beer. Um, so taking that around to sh- show people as the sort of first trial brew, there were some pretty funny looks on people's faces. Right, I bet. Um, yeah. But we thought it was almost right, not quite. So we tipped that down the drain to put the second brew in. And, and when that came out, the three of us just said, yes, that's exactly what we want. Um, and, you know, step away from the car driver. Don't touch the recipe. Just wow. keep cranking this out. You um, couldn't make that up. I mean, what's, what's the chance <laughs> of that happening these days? <laughs> well, different market, yeah, different yeah. time. I, I might, different I'll time. come back to that, actually, because yeah. I do have a question around that. Um, all right, so I, I don't want to go through the whole story because there are a couple of other podcasts. I'll do an intro before this and tell people the other podcasts you've been on because there's yeah. some really fantastic ones um, where you dig into that. Um, I want to get into some of the just some of these things around growth. Um, I guess the first question I've got is, were there any times or many times where you thought all of this was just going to go to shit? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, look, um, you know, I guess when you think about the 25 hectolitre kit um, in 2008, there wasn't many brew kits that big in the country uh, in the sort of craft beer into the market. You know, I think Creatures had a 50 hect DME kit. no one else was putting anything in of that scale. Everyone mm. was going for an eight or a ten heck kit. And you so, started with this without anything in the market. Yep, yep. So, and I guess we focused on the fact that we always knew that to get the business to a point where it's sustainable, we needed to do about a hundred thousand cases equivalent. Right. Um, how did how did you know that number? Uh, through I guess working in the industry for many years, you could see that any brand that was able to get to that number and still be growing meant that if you think about you know the population the drinking the drinking population distribution penetration and trial if you had a volume of that sort of magnitude and you still had growth and you still had distribution opportunity you sort of knew you had a brand as opposed to just a label or a a beer. So it's um, about a million litres? Yeah, just under a million litres. Yeah. So so our thinking was the 25 heck kit would comfortably get us to that million litre mark. We didn't put all the fermenters in to get there to start with. We scaled up with yeah. those. Um, but we put the services and the engineering in around the brew kit to make sure we had the grunt to get there. So it was basically a cast the line out and go, yeah, this is where we need to be. To, for, for, yeah. us, for the three of us to actually make a living out of this thing, it needs to get to that sort of volume. Otherwise, we're just playing around. So, um, so yeah, build the brewery with the ability to get there and then grow into it. Um, and so w- was there a, a stop along the way where you just thought, we're actually not going to get there? Well, there were, you know, the first two years was bloody tough. You know, um, Roscoe will tell you the stories about knocking on the door, you know, trying to sell what is now Pacific Ale, the publicans, and they just go, Stone and who? What? Where are you from? <laughs> Byron Bay. Yeah. Uh, what do you got? You should be back home smoking dope. You yeah. shouldn't be selling <laughs> right. beer. And then they taste the beer and they just go, what the fuck is this? You know. Um, yeah. So um, it took a long time before people understood what that beer was about, um, mm. particularly in the local market. Um, and, yeah, there were weeks there where we might have sold a couple of kegs a week, you know, um, and when you've got 
a 25 heck kit sitting there, you know, with tanks full and you sell two kegs a week, it's like, holy shit. You yeah. Know? Um, and no tap room at the time. No tap room. No other form of cash. Um, so, and no yeah. package? Oh, well, I guess. Uh, no, we packaged, started packaging big beer, beer about four months after we right. started. Um, yeah. The first beer we put in a bottle was um, what is now Green Coast Lager. Okay. So, yeah. When was the moment when you thought, okay, this is actually going to work? <laughs> um, yeah, probably about two and a half years in. Um, and I guess there was a there was a moment there before Christmas one year where we um, we looked at we looked at our orders coming in on the fax machine and through email and just fax went, machine well. yeah. <laughs> yeah fax machine well there were certain wholesalers like uh, ALM at the time and, and and the national account guys would send you would fax you orders wow. <laughs> it was quite bizarre um, and. Um, we just knew we couldn't fill those orders. Um, there was no way we could fill the orders. Uh, and we were cranking as much beer out as we could. We had tanks on, lo- tanks on order. We had tanks on the way. We were installing tanks. Um, and was, yet, it, was the company profitable at, at the time? Uh, no, 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 we're near it. No, no, no. So, but we could tell that there was some real consumer interest in the brand. Yeah. So um, it was just a case of then of, you know, being very disciplined about how we grew. When you say discipline, is that, you know, not spending too much money on stuff or, you know, getting getting the right amount of finance at the right amount of time at the right time? Or? Yeah, really good question. Um, I think one of the things when you're when you're starting a brewing business, you've got to be really, you've got to be disciplined and pragmatic about how how and where you spend money. And brewing kit wise, you know, we didn't. There wasn't a lot of bells and whistles on our on our original kit. We still brew beer on it here, and it's you know, there's no automation. It's pretty pretty straightforward brew kit um yes it's a five vessel brew kit um or four vessel brew kit but um which once again was designed to get to that million liters easily um so we'd we'd spent on scale but in terms of toys and trinkets like a lot of brewers tend to like to fill their brewery full of you know the latest bits and kit um that just chews up money you know Mm. our view was we'll spend money on things that are going to ensure the quality's right and actually also give us scale so we didn't spend money on anything else apart from stainless steel because we knew we'd get a return on it as you started to grow um you sort of you know marketing almost had to sort of be be second cousin really Mm. but some Um, of that quality stuff can be super expensive i mean the, the, the equipment it falls in line with that quality yeah, but I think um, at the time, you know, and people would be surprised how little we spent on lab gear for the first few years, um, first five years probably. Um, you have to be pretty, very pragmatic though and really, you know, knowing the nth degree of everything wasn't going to really matter if, if, if the, you know, if sensory-wise and the quality wasn't there. So, so yeah, it was getting the balance right between spending on the right things. But, yeah, being very disciplined and not spending ahead of – demand was the other thing that we've and we still don't um you know uh and that's where a lot of people fall come unstuck you know if if you've got a fast growing business in this industry it doesn't necessarily mean you're successful financially you know because you just that just means you have to spend more money yeah, yeah. <laughs> on kit right so it's about making sure that you can spend within your means to to grow within your means um so yeah we we funded most of it through debt right. um but very carefully okay and just a related question to that, has your growth been uh, reasonably steady in terms of like, could you, do you feel like you could reasonably predict where you'd be in, in a year's time? Oh, no, we could, I mean, now probably yes, but back, but back, um, back probably in the years sort of 20, 
2013 to 2015, it was a throw a dart at a dartboard in right. terms of what the number would likely be. Um, we were so far off being able to fill those orders every summer mm. that we knew the demand was just massive. Um, so when we designed, you know, the last 12 months we were in Byron as we moved to Moolumbar, um we did two and a half million litres of beer in that little shed, 500 square metre shed now. That taught us a lot of things. Yeah. Firstly, um, it's amazing what you can do mm. <laughs> in a small space. You're brewing 24-7? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. the brew house was brewing 24-7 um, in the 25-heck brew house, brewing into our biggest tanks at the time, the 200-heck tanks. Yeah. Our little bottling line, um, we would turn on on a Monday morning and turn her, turn her off on a Friday night. So she would run 24-7. Well, 24-5, um, and it wasn't the fastest bottling line in the world. But um, And there were all sorts of crazy things we had to do to try and be sustainable through that. But what it taught us was it put a lot of strain on the business, a lot of strain on the team, a lot of strain on the brand because we couldn't keep up anywhere near with demand. Um, so when we built Mwollumbar, and once again we went through crazy growth because we thought at the time Mwollumbar would sort of soak up a lot of the demand, hmm. We ended up having to double the capacity of it in the first 18 months that we built it. Wow. So, was that a lot to do with the current sort of craft beer boom? Yeah, certainly. Certainly, I think we've hitched our wagon on you know the craft beer boom, but we didn't really set out to build a craft brand. We, no. set, we set out to build a regional brewing business. So, but I guess it, at some point it, you it, went from having to sell the beer to like the market really wanting <laughs> your beer. Yeah. Oh, definitely. You know, and that happened in probably two years, two and a half years in. But um, but I think the um. That first year and a half in Mwollumbar, we sat back and went, well, this is crazy. We can just keep throwing endless amounts of money at this thing. And we're probably nowhere near 50% of meeting demand. Um, but we're not going to, but the, the amount of money you start to throw at it when you get to that scale, you sort of go, well, that's, that's the only way to fund that is going to be giving equity away or uh, bringing someone else in to help fund it, which is going to end up in a place we didn't want it to. So we said, no, we're just got to be comfortable with sustainable growth rate um so we've put the brakes on probably for the last four years um and said we're happy you know we were growing 100 percent year on year there for a while um and now we're growing you know sort of around 20 20 percent um and so, so how how do you put the brakes on um well you just got to be comfortable that you're leaving demand on the table mm. you know um so yeah we still sell most of our beer um within three hours of the brewery um right we still sell um, 55% of our beer in keg form wow. um, when the market is probably 20% keg, 80% yeah. pack total market. Yeah, it's hard to sell kegs. Um, and we still only sell less than 15% of our total volume goes through Coles and Woolies. Um, um, and and all those measures were around slowing the growth down but also being sustainable, particularly from a cash flow viewpoint. Mm. You, know, you talk about growth and how you fund growth, cash is so bloody important. And by having such a strong mix of draft beer, when you've got customers you're selling direct beer to, seven-day trading terms, you're getting that cash back in the door really quickly. Um, so that really helps fund your growth. Yeah. Um, the other thing is um, all that beer you're selling in draft, you're not chewing up cash in bottles, labels, cartons, sitting in your dry goods store waiting to be packed. You're not selling it through wholesalers who, you know, could pay you in 60 days or whatever yeah um so yeah being prudent about where you sell your about how you spend your money and then where you sell your beer um can really help cash mm, okay. cash generation and um this may be a little bit of a cheeky question but you said you weren't profitable at the start i assume you are now and at some point in there 
to make a decision like that, you wouldn't be able to make that decision unless you were comfortably profitable. Yeah, we were, we were probably, when we made that call, we would have been profitable for probably a couple of years. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and I guess, yeah, it took us until probably 2012, 2013 to sort of put our head in the, in the black. Um, so a lot of red ink on the profit and loss statement for the first few years. Um, um, and I wanted to ask you about um, the Little Creatures stuff. So at some point, you, my understanding of it is you sold um, a reasonably large percentage of it to Little Creatures who were independent at the time um, and you since bought that back. What, 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 when did that happen and what thinking went into that? Um, yeah, that happened probably within the first 12 months or so of us starting operating. Oh, okay. Um, we, we um, you know, came out of corporate world and, want, and talked about cash. One of the things we probably underestimated when we first started up was how much cash you would actually chew up just in operating the business. Um, you know, in corporate world, you sign the invoice and send it off to accounts payable and someone worries about paying the, paying the bills. When it's your own business, you've got to, you got to find that cash. Um, so um, we thought we knew we were going to be undercapitalised probably a year or so in. Um, so we brought in and we went back to that model of who were we going to bring in, um, how are we going to raise the capital. Um, none of us really wanted to or had the cash to go to go again. So um, so we said we need to bring another strategic partner in and we looked at um, who that could be, could bring value to the table strategically, whether it was another brewer or... I don't know, distrib- a distributor or whatever. Um, and we decided, I knew the guys from um, Little Creatures really well. I worked with them at Matilda Bay back in the 80s. Right. Um, so I reached out to them and, and brought them on board and really um, that helped us. You know, they put, they put you know, not a huge amount of money on the table um, for 20% of the business. Yeah. Um, and, then at, and then three years after that, um, two and a bit years after that. Um, at the time when we brought them in, we knew that Lion had about 25% of that business when, when, when they invested in us. So, and we knew that was a ticking time bomb. At some point, Lion would actually run out of patience and take them out. So um, we made sure we had a change of control clause in our shareholders agreement when we brought them in. Right. Um, so when Lion moved on them, um, we were able to buy back those shares um, at a valuation that was actually a historical multiple of EBITDA and at that point we weren't profitable. How does that even happen? So, so basically we almost gave them their money back for what they put in two and a half it years like earlier. It seems like a very good deal for you. Yeah, well I think at the time they knew that they were pretty keen to get involved and um, they knew the situation, you know, yeah. with Lion and they probably knew we knew that we could read the tea leaves as well. So, um, and at the time they thought as long as they got their money back, um, that w- that's the worst thing that could happen um, yeah. if they invested in us. So why, just, just so we don't skip over that, you said you got them on board. What, what, what was happening in their business that made them want to get involved? Uh, I, think, I think for them, you know, they'll probably... They were probably where we were a couple of years ago at that point. You know, they were probably doing, I don't know. No, actually, probably they were a little bit further back than that. They were probably doing, I think at the time, sort of six million litres or so. Yeah. Um, six or seven million litres. Um, they were highly profitable. Um, they had, obviously, you know, a pretty good facility over there in in Perth, in, ter- in Frio, in terms of the venue, um, spitting out good cash. Um, but... I think that had been approached a lot over the years for to get involved in other businesses um, and could never really see one that 
really fitted what they were looking for. Um, but I think walking into our business, they could see that was you know a good team, um, a good brand, a great idea, and and. I think for them, you know, they're entrepreneurs at heart, those guys, you know, after they've sold little creatures, they've gone off and done other things, you know. Um, so they, um, I think they, they saw an interest basically from an entrepreneurial bent, you know, to see how this thing plays out. Um, so, yeah, they, 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 were, they were quite comfortable to invest. Um, very pragmatic uh, in terms of the level of investment, but um, also, I think, pretty realistic about the legalities around the shareholders agreement and the, you know, inevitable change of control i guess yeah okay how how long was that period between when they bought and when and when you bought back uh it would have only been two and a half three two and a half years maybe three at, right. at max and mm. and i guess the question i have about that i heard um i think it was ross talking on another podcast about it you know i think the the, the question was do you have any regrets or something like that and that sort of came up as almost like a negative i think he was just trying to think of something <laughs> but my question is was there um, positive things associated with that because you, I guess potentially you're getting a lot more distribution or, or getting access to other markets or yeah look I think um, it's interesting I, I th- there were certainly positives um, the positives were and the reason we reached out to them in the first place was these guys had been through what we were about to go through um, right. is the way we looked at it you know when you look around the landscape they were highly successful they'd built that thing to scale um, in, a, in okay not as cluttered a market as is today but but uh, even even without that, I think they would have cut through that. Um, so I think having those guys at the board table um, certainly were almost like mentors to us in a way. Um, so they helped us, I think, and guided us on a few things, which was which was really useful. Um, I think what Brad uh, Ross might have been alluding to was when they when they came on board, they also uh, looked after our distribution outside of outside of our home market. Um, and I think that didn't actually hit the mark. Um, I think we learned out of that that no one sells your beer better than you do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and at the time, at the time they didn't have a massive portfolio, um, but I think putting a couple of products into that portfolio that weren't theirs um, was sort of a- almost against their culture. Right. Um, so they were selling their own beer before yours and... Yeah, you know, plus also then I think White Rabbit had also just been launched. So they sort of had this idea of building a portfolio themselves. And so all of a sudden our brand became, you know, lower lower down the priority list, I guess. Right, Um, but but ultimately did it end up being a good thing when you... When you got back control, were you able to maintain some of those accounts that you may not have otherwise got? Um, we actually made the decision to pull our beer out of their distribution before they sold before the before the transaction right. with Lion. So, and that was a that was a decision we made around with them around the board table. We said, mm. you know, look, actually, no, we've actually got to get out there and do this ourselves. So, okay. we made a conscious decision to build our own sales team. Right. Um, let's move on. I, something that you guys has always stood out to me about Stone and Wood. Um, is the people and the culture you have here. And it's I guess it's easy to do that when it's three of you, but it's much different to do that when there's over 100. Um, is there any advice you can give in that? Like like how, how every experience I've had with anyone from Stone and Wood has been positive. Everyone who works here seems to be a legend. It's a really great place and that doesn't happen by accident. Yeah, we get that comment a lot. Um, I think it goes back to how you start the business and and if you're building a values-based business from day one then you're going to have that in mind um and and we certainly set out to do that i think the other thing is coming from the corporate world um 
there were things about corporate life which are great, you know, um, you know, supposedly a secure, steady job, you mm. know, um, you know, usually pretty good pay, uh, all those sorts of things. But um, there's some pretty crap things that go along with being in the corporate world, you know, um, yeah. the politics of of big business, um, the actual insecurity of them, you know, musical chairs every couple of, every couple of years around reorganisations and stuff. Um, so. But I think that it was the political side of the business that we really hated, like the doing business with yourself sort of stuff that goes on in big corporates. So that was one of the big drivers for us and got going and doing our own thing was actually to get away from all of that. So um, we wanted to make sure whatever we built as a business wasn't going to replicate that. Um, and and I think it was probably a few years in when we, re- when we had about 14 staff members that we uh, – and I've since learnt that, that sort of 14 to sort of 16 – team size is where you actually really need to nail nail that cultural stuff because right. if you don't it'll it'll build a, it'll go off on its own track um and we jumped on it then really in recognition that holy shit all of us we, we had a team day to sort of planning day and usually the planning day was the three of us sitting around my kitchen table or you know a cafe table talking about what we were going to do for the next 12 months but when we realized we had a team of 14 people we need to actually have a get them in the room and actually talk about what we're going to do and the other piece we then thought of is, you know, this business, the story behind it, you know, originally was three guys quit working for man to go and do their own thing, you know, and we were starting to think well, we could become the man if we're not <laughs> careful, you know. Um, so so that really set us down the path of finding what the purpose of behind the business is and then, and then making sure the values are aligned to making sure we deliver on that purpose. And then as we hired people, and I guess we hired okay from the start, um, um, and that was more sort of our read on people and the values that we have as three individuals, um, the shared values. So we we rec- we recruited for that. But then once we'd got the purpose lined and the, and the team had resolved what those values were and the behaviours that we would accept in the business, then basically you go about you know that culture then almost evolves over time if you if you keep tight to it. Um, make sure you once you realise someone who's come in who doesn't. Um, live by those values or behaviours or, or isn't right for the culture, you've got to get that culture to a point where it'll spit them out anyway, you know, um, or you have to make the make the call yourself. But yeah. and, and we're at a point now, yeah, with 144 permanent people in the business, um, Brad, Ross and I don't really have any day-to-day involvement in that cultural stuff. That 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 lives, you know, on its own now. Um, I guess the, the other massive thing that stands out about stone and wood is the brand how do you build a brand like this and and what you see stone and wood now is this exactly what you hoped it could be when you started yes um in short um yeah look i think um having spent a lot of time in marketing um in the beer business and in the wine industry um i think one of the key things that we learned was that you know if you look at marketing over the years um i always sort of paint the picture of Brands were built back in the town square in the marketplace and that's where marketing became marketing was, you know, a whole bunch of stallholders standing around the town square selling goods. Um, yeah. And the brand was the stallholders brand, you know, whether it was Fred the the fishmonger um, or Bob the fishmonger at the other end, you know, there was two competing brands in that town square and people would go to whichever personality or brand they 
associated with. Yeah. Um, so if one of them was a sad, sad, dour old guy who just sold fish and the other guy was, you know, remembered your name, remembered your kid's name, happy, always someone happy to talk to, um, he probably got all the business. They sold the same product. Yeah. Um, same fish out of the same sea. Um, so then came along advertising and marketing and all of a sudden efficiency and, you know, um, scale, mass communication sort of, we lost all of that. Uh, that whole town square thing it became what you know advertising in newspapers radio eventually tv um but it's come full circle it's come back with social media it's come back to producers having a one-on-one conversation with um with their with their consumers um um, whether it be through social media or at events or whatever um and i think that's so we could see that happening and so therefore the authenticity of your brand has to be your brand has to be the same personality that your people in your business have so we see a direct line of sight between what you portray as your brand plus the business's brand plus the consumer plus the plus the people in the business having the same values and personality so that direct alignment um, we think that's we think that's the real strength in in having a solid brand an authentic brand these days and and the difference being with the big guys is they have brands that are just assets you know yeah and, and and the brand is trying to differentiate that brand away from the other brand in their portfolio that pretty much is the same liquid. Right. Well, um, I think that's probably why they're starting <laughs> to buy brands. Yeah. Well, they, you know, I mean, and you see they, they get treated like assets because they just get sold off or whatever, you know. So you end up, and I think consumers are starting to see through all that, you know, that, that sort of the anti-marketing thing that's developing there amongst conscious consumers is is based on the fact that marketing was so skin deep. Yeah. You know, Um very much skin deep you know whether it be mad men you know go back to that sort of era it yeah. was and that sort of still lives in some of those big businesses the brands are skin deep um whereas true brands these days you scratch the surface you go way back deep into what the business and the organization and the people are yeah and that's the brand right as you were saying that i was sort of thinking that the town market concept is sort of almost like the tap room for the brewery i know with our business the tap room is just critical like like so many people who drink our beer and who come into the business have been to the tap room and you were just telling me before when you started you didn't have one but when you when you did put one in you found that made a really big difference to the brand yeah certainly certainly personal engagement you know a one-on-one engagement whether it's in person at the tap room um or virtually through social media uh, yeah. that that one-on-one engagement is super critical these days yeah right and and you i guess you guys have almost gone the opposite way now where you're looking at having multiple venues yeah, I mean that's. I mean we've got obviously fixation, which is a different brand down in Melbourne. We've got the facility here, and we're about to open one in Brisbane. Um, we're not going to go crazy dropping them everywhere. Um, the Brisbane one for us is is probably you know um, making sure that that three hours from the brewery is actually still rel- we're still relevant to. You yeah. know, when we opened back in two thousand and eight, there were I think five or six breweries um, in that arc between. Um, Coffs Harbour almost and Noosa. Now there's close to bloody 50 or 60 or something. So um, so we've got to make sure we're still locally relevant in, in what we consider our backyard. Right. Um, the, the other question I have around branding is what, what led to your decision to go into other brands for some of these beers? So I guess the, the biggest question I've got is around the, the, the IPA one because the counterculture one to me seems logical. It's like to, seems kind of totally separate, but it's a good opportunity to be relevant. And that's something that Stone and Woods seem to have done better than any other company that's been around that long is that you're just as relevant in the current craft beer boom as as anyone. 
and a lot of the companies who started back then are not. Um, but the IPA one's interesting to me because I, I just I just would have thought like a stone and wood IPA would absolutely crush. Yeah, well, that's um, a lot of people said that, uh, and this is I guess come back comes back to our marketing philosophy, um, being very purist about your brand. Um, so. You know, and being being disciplined and not chasing volume for volume's sake from a brand perspective. So, um, as we grew Stone and Wood, we were always going to be about simple, approachable, um, r- simply good to drink beers, yeah. um, sessionable beers, beers that people are happy to drink a lot of. Um, and that's what Stone and Wood really. That's what the heart the heart of Stone and Wood's beer philosophy is. Yeah. Um, IPA. Um, we saw in the States it continued to grow and grow. And, you know, we saw a couple of brewers here try IPA yep. um, back in the day. Um, and our view was... Well, Little oh, Creatures had a, quite a good one, didn't they? Yeah, well, and that's an interesting story in itself. You know, you talk to Howard Cairns, who was obviously the marketing guy behind Little Creatures. And 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 after we launched Fixation, um, I had this conversation with Howard. And, and, you know, and when I saw Little Creatures launch their IPA, I thought that's almost... It's almost like dethroning the king. You know, mm. you've got an American pale ale there, and then you go and launch an IPA. What does that say about? What does that say about your pale ale? Right. Um, so we we thought big, ballsy, hoppy IPAs aren't what Stone and Woods about. Okay. Um, and therefore, why confuse consumers around what that the essence of Stone and Woods beer philosophy is? We're better off setting up a separate brand to focus on IPA. Um, and back in the day, yeah. Um, creatures tried it goat tried it um, and on both of those plays I, I reflected on that and thought well what's that, what they've actually done there is they've just line extended their core brand mm. um, into an IPA and and they weren't really sub branded you know both of those businesses didn't really have sub brands yeah um, so it would be like a wine business deciding they're doing Chardonnay Shiraz Merlot Cabernet and then oh Sauvignon Blanc's hot let's just bang one of those in there mm. and that's sort of what those two rollouts sort of said to me was little creatures oh, IPA is growing let's throw an IPA out there and Goat did the same but the problem is they didn't do it at the right scale they threw big maker volume out there um, and hoped that it would take off and of course you know it got aged on the shelf yeah yeah quality dropped probably um, confused people as well and at the time consumers were still unclear really what IPA was most 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 beer drinkers um and we thought, no, the best way to play the IPA, IPA game was actually to have a brand that actually heroes the style, um, tells the story, um, and is, is singly focused. So that was that was the idea behind fixation, marketing purity in a way. Um, same 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 with the cider, you know, same with the cider business. Um, could have rolled out a stone wood cider, but that's not what that's not a it's not a beer. Yeah. <laughs> so it starts yeah. to stretch your brand equity in in places that you know. You don't want it to go right I, I will move on from this but i do have one question around that i know when i started getting into stone and wood i would confuse pack with stone and wood and i know does that play into it at all like did it get to the point where anyone who drunk stone and wood was expecting to get pack um well, well certainly when you've got a flagship that has been such a big portion of our volume and yeah particularly out of our backyard um most people's uh engaging with stone and wood are really they're drinking pacific ale but they're probably just thinking stone and wood yes um and that was fine um we deliberately set up to build a, a branded house uh in the day because um when you first start you can't afford you can't afford to invest in a whole bunch of different brands sub brands so 
throw all our what money we did spend on marketing at stone and wood um but yeah in the last couple of years we've you know and and we thought we'd hold our breath on that for at least seven years um when we first started it was a deliberate thing to actually build the stone and wood brand um but in the last (laughs) in the last couple of years it's been you know there's an evolution underway i guess and uh, you don't have to be blind freddy to see that um you know things like cloud catcher green coast and garden ale are starting to have their own sub-brand and Pacific Ale will, will also do that as well, but we're not going to move as fast on Pacific Ale. That current branding, you know, you don't you don't play around with that too quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how do you feel about that competition? Just the amount of breweries now compared to when this began? Oh, look, you know, it's 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 growing the category, right? You know, um, so competition's a good thing. Um, the challenge will be when it gets to a point where it's the market's probably saturated. Yeah. Um, and it'll have a way. It'll have a way of finding finding its own level. Uh, I think uh, we're really starting to see that. You know, I think per capita we're about the same. Actually, more I think now than the US. I think in terms of per cap- number of breweries per capita. Right. Um, Definitely doesn't feel like that. I guess it, when I've been to the US, I've gone to the places where all the breweries are. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but I think the challenge is going to be for the some of the some of the startups and even some of the smaller guys is. The wholesale market's getting so tight and cluttered. Yeah. So you've got to have a good brand to get on a tap or in shelf and you've got to have good throughput. So there's got to be consumer demand there. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, you can't market your business just by putting your biz- your product in a fridge. You know? You've actually got to build consumer demand for it to get it off the shelf because the guy in the bottle shop, he's, he's that's not his job, right? His, his job is to stock the goods and give his customers what they want when they walk in the door. So mm. you've got to build your brand to pull it through those stores. So, and that, I think that's where the challenge is because they're going to run out of patience. You know, if, if, they've, if they've stocked, you know, three or four new SKUs from a new brewery and it doesn't pull through, um, you probably won't get a second shot at that, you know. So I think that's where the challenge will be. And you'll see, and it's already happening, people retreating back to their, I guess, their, their tap rooms um, as being, you know, happy to do business out of their tap room do a little bit of takeaway business through their tap room and maybe a couple of local bottle shops, um, growlers and things. Um, that's fine um, if, if people are comfortable with that model. You know, I think, I think you'll see people uh, be either comfortable with that or realise that oh, my dream of having this big beer brand isn't possible right. and I've, all I've done is created a hospitality job for myself. Yeah. You know? And that's... Um, so I think we'll see, and we've already seen. I think people exit the business based on that. That in the industry, you know, that it's like, yeah, that's not really what I, <laughs> what I hope to get out of doing this. Yeah, um, and do you, like, personally, is this something you worry about for Stone and Wood, or you you more worry about it from other people in the industry? Um, oh, I'm I'm worried about what it says about the industry when I see when I see businesses going out of business or um, being sold, you know, because they've been unsuccessful. Um, um, I, I worry from a viewpoint of what it says about beer in general. Right. Um, and I think, you know, wh- one of the things that concerns me is the industry being looked at, because it's high growth industry at the moment, it's, you know, it's almost people take this tech tech stock almost mindset of, you know, yep. shit, let's jump in here, let's throw some money at it, let's pump it up. No, don't care if it's profitable, we'll offload it um, in time. Um, and the, the, the risk of that is that you have people come into the industry who don't really get their head around it yeah um understand reasons yeah for the wrong reasons and then they end up stuck um making mistakes um or the model's wrong um or because they're not worried about profit 
they'll destroy value in the category, you know. I mean, one of the things we have to do is make sure we protect the value in the category. So yeah. everybody's sustainability is based on the fact that consumers are happy to pay a decent price for beer in this right. country. Um, if you have too many operators out there undercutting everybody and all of a sudden trying to pull prices down, um, you'll see a whole lot of businesses struggle. So yeah. the actions of a few can impact on a lot of people. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I've got a couple of questions from our Facebook group, if you don't mind. Some of these are a little bit more cheeky, but I'm going to ask them anyway. Um, Scott Imlock, who owns a couple of bars on the Gold Coast, you probably know Scott. Um, his question is, how much would you sell to the big boys? <laughs> how much would you sell for to the big boys? Uh, look, that's a question we get asked a lot, Scott. <laughs> um, look... The, the, the reality is that we're we're fiercely independent. We're we're very happy to keep ownership in the business, um, but you also have to say that there's four families involved in the business, and four families, four different families, not one family. So, um, who all have different motivations at some point through you know through the evolution of a family. So, yeah. who knows? At some point, there might be one of those four families who may want to do something else. You know, you can't you can't predict that. Um, but we've tried to set the business up in a way where hopefully we can deal with that if that if that does arise. Yeah, and I guess if it, the more valuable the company comes, the, the more difficult it is for that to be absorbed if someone decides to go a different direction. Yeah. Um, second question from Reese Lockhead: Are they are Stone and Wood transitioning everything to cans? Um, if so, which I'm guessing the answer is no. But if so, what's brought that about, and why not? If not, <laughs> cans are the shiz. <laughs> <laughs> Look. Cans are the shiz, but, <laughs> but but there is still only twenty percent of the marketplace, right? Yep. Um, and that's in craft uh, right. total market. They'd be even smaller. Um, it's certainly um, something we've monitored over time, and we've had this question for years. We've had it from our team for five years or so. You know, when are we going to put beer in cans? And we always looked at it and went, well. And at the time, we it was just after we'd built Mwollombar. We just spent a stack of money on a on a pretty shit hot filler right. bottle filler. And people were asking, well, you know, we should buy one of these small little can lines and just whack it in there and put some beer in cans. And we're like, well, we've just spent money to improve the quality of our packaged beer in bottle, really low DOs. Why would we then risk all of that quality and putting a small little can line in that is just going to nowhere near meet the quality we're doing? Um, And the demand wasn't there at that point in time. Um, So we said, we'll sit and watch. and we'll wait if the if the demand grows, then we'll we'll move. But we'll only move if we can afford to buy a decent ca- can filler. Yeah, and do um, it properly. And at that time, five years ago, there was nothing apart from you know two thousand cans a second. You know whatever second crazy buddy. You know things like you see at Yatler or Milton. Yeah. Um, so you're thinking about this five years ago. Yeah, right. you know, um, but there was nothing of of mid-range can filling capability of good quality it was a small little you know inline three head can filler or things that the big brewers would use or soft drink manufacturers would use but we knew over time in the states you could see those small those those guys were actually growing pretty quickly put beer in cans that at some point those filling those filling machine manufacturers would actually have to go shit, we need something smaller than yeah. this. There's a market there because these guys will never be able to afford one of our big machines. And slowly but surely, we could see that happening. Um, and uh, probably 18 months ago, uh, we, it got to a point where, yep, there's some pretty good buddy kid out there now. Yeah. Um, and so we decided to move on it. Do you so, mind me asking which, which canning machine you got? Yeah, we went with KHS. 
Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, we've we've had a keg filler from them for uh, our first automated keg filler, and it's probably one of the best kits in the brewery. Bits, yeah. of, bits of kit in the brewery. Um, so so yeah. So we decided to go down that track, um, and we've had a plan in place in terms of transitioning some things into cans. Um, so obviously Pacific Ale, there's a need for that. So we put that was the first thing to go into cans, uh, and it's still in cans, and it's you know it's a, now a ch- chunk of. Pacific Ale volume, not massive, but it's a good chunk of our volume. Yeah. Um, uh, and Stone and Wood, we've also put Garden Ale in cans. Jasper Ale will transition into cans um, in the in the near future. Um, and at some point, Cloudcatcher Green Coast will, but they're still probably in growth uh, and at a point where only you can only really sustain one skew out in the marketplace. Okay. So. Yep. Once that brown, once those get to a level where we could probably have two two skews in the marketplace, you know, because bottle shops, not every bottle shop is going to put glass and cans in. Um, right. So you're not you wouldn't look at replacing the glass with the can. Not with Pacific Ale, God no, no, you know. You, you, no, but with the other the other. Uh, well, certainly we have with Garden Ale, and yeah. we will with Jasper. Okay. Um, but not with Cloudcatcher and Green Coast. Or, yeah. um, so and then counterculture, obviously, you know, that market that that that, that range is focused at is very much the pointy end and yep. you know they're all can can nuts so um which is why we went the 500 mil can for them yeah yep. fixation um has transitioned completely out of glass into cans of course that ipa market once again uh that market is very much can friendly cat and elder says when does he want me to start working for him i asked him the same thing so you don't have to answer that one <laughs> uh sean astle says and keep with the theme of the podcast expansion love to ask a few things what was their model from starting up to new brewery tap room to their explosion to countrywide distribution? Yeah, I think countrywide distribution is an interesting one. And I think that's, um, if we had our time again, people ask the question, you know, if you had your time again, what would you do differently? Um, we probably wouldn't have expanded as quickly as we did into the likes of South Australia and Western Australia. Right. Um, that sort of happened back in the day through little creatures a little bit. So we got dragged into states we probably didn't really need to be in. Um and now we're sort of in, a, unfortunately, for probably the people who like our beer in those states, we're in a bit of a holding pattern. Um, so we give them enough beer to sort of keep it ticking along, but but the eastern states is really our focus. Um, so, yeah, I think the lesson there is probably make sure you've got your home market well and truly buttoned down and you expand within your means outside of your home market. And I think that, you know, that lesson's been taught from a number of different aspects in the u.s with some of the brewers over there you know yeah. getting well out of their backyard and realizing that you know that demand's not going to be there in the long term might be there at one point in your life cycle but um, particularly with the number of new brewers starting up you know you go to wa um, and there's demand there but you know since we first started selling beer in wa there's probably another i don't know 50 60 breweries over there yeah uh, who are all local who are all very relevant um, who have got local support from the trade. So yeah. um, so you're less relevant. Yeah, it, it surprised me when you told me how much of Stone and Wood was still sold here. I, I was blown away. I knew that was very much the case early on, but it was, yeah, to, to think that that's still the case now su- will surprise a lot of people, I think. Okay, I better let you go. That's been an hour and 26 minutes. So thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you doing this. Thank you for doing this. Um, I guess if we can just finish on plugging a couple of upcoming things... Do you have anything in particular you want to talk about? But I've got a few that I know that Stone and Wood are involved in. Uh, well, it depends on how quickly this is going to hit the deck. But it'll, obviously... It'll uh, be up tonight. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Then, yes, obviously, there's our Backyard Invitational coming up uh, yep. on the Goldie um, in a, in another few weeks. Yep. 17th uh, of August. Yep. 
um, which you guys are coming along to, which is great. Thank so that's um, that's something we 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 hope to do annually every year. We started last year in Brisbane, um, and we invited some of the local Brisbane brewers and then brewers from around the country over the years. We've known We're doing the same thing on the Gold Coast this year. So you obviously one of the leading Gold Coast breweries along with some of the other guys there and some breweries from around the rest of the country and yeah we'll move that around so we might do it on the sunny coast next year and um, at some point down here in the Northern Rivers so nice. yeah that's it looks a, like an awesome awesome festival it's not, yeah not and the, the key thing with that is unlike a lot of festivals it's you only got to pay to get in so it might be 60 bucks whack to get in the door but gets you everything you everything you want in terms of tastings yeah. um, and and a food voucher and some music so you don't have to worry about um shelling out every time you go and have a have a mouthful of a, of a brewer's beer nice and it's in burley so that's perfect yeah yeah <laughs> um and the brisbane venue how far off is that yeah we're probably september still we're okay. hoping yeah 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 we're on track there we had some hold up with we had to rectify the floor in the heritage building so the landlords actually had to do some work on that um but we're in there now swinging laying tiles and building toilets and fitting out kitchens and stuff yep nice i'm excited about that i grew up grew up in brisbane i never would have thought there'd be a stone and wood brew pub in this in in that location um the other thing was the counterculture got a beer that's been announced today the french toast one yeah so yeah that's the next the, counterculture beer. yes the, it'd be rude not to yeah yeah. yeah 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 i mean that's a great that's a great bit of fun i mean i think there's been some pent-up creativity that 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 little range of beers is going to provide for not just the brewers but for the creative people in the marketing team you know i think um something we talk about is the mtv effect of 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 beer these days where it's not just the liquid it's actually the the branding and the packaging yeah um, you know it's like the mtv world where it was only the, the music and then the videos come along right um, it's a very similar thing i think happening at that sort of appealing to that end of the market um, people get excited about the cans and take photos and put them on social yeah, media yeah yeah and it is part of the story you know so the, the guys have a great time sort of developing the product but also the story around it and the branding and stuff a lot of effort for eight weeks that it lives in the marketplace but um, yeah <laughs> but uh if you do it in a way where it's really practical about it um it doesn't cost a huge amount but it's but it's highly focused doesn't cause a lot of distraction for us but um it and i can tell you it it the team, I'm sure, would love it because I know not every brand is this active in this kind of pointy end of craft beer and I know the team absolutely love that kind of stuff even if it's not a big seller. So I'm sure Stone and Wood staff appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it certainly excites the team. Um, the key, the interesting thing is, you know, and that was directly targeted at the pointy end drinkers, you know, um, but funnily enough, there's a whole bunch of beer drinkers out there who don't drink a lot of beer that are the ones that are probably even more noisily passionate about those things. Right. Um, which maybe that's a indication of the beers we've rolled out there so far, far in the range. But... Um, yeah, there's a there's a rising number of beer drinkers who I wouldn't call beer geeks that are actually really getting off on this sort of variety of flavour that's coming mm. along. Yeah, um, and the final thing I had is is you're also the chairman of the IBA and you've got the uh, Brewcon coming up and the Indies in September, is it? Yes, yeah, yeah. So that's um that's the fourth, fifth, and sixth of September, uh, in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, exciting uh, this year. The Brewcon um, down, being back at down in sort of the one of the original markets of craft beer. Yeah. Um, yeah, got some exciting uh, speakers that we'll probably be announcing in the next week or so. Um, some keynote people, etc. Um, trade shows running for three days this year. Um, we're selling daily trade show tickets, so for people who can't 
get to the whole conference part of it can certainly go along to a day of the trade show and, and see because there's some great exhibitors as well uh, for the trade show. Uh, and the Indies had a massive uh, record number of entries this oh, year. Oh, good. Um, We've submitted so for the first time, which is right. cool. Yeah, yeah. No, over a 1,000 entries. Wow. Um, so that's about a 34 35% increase in, in entries, which really? is massive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you've got this new award I saw yesterday for the, the uh, independent beer supporter, which is pretty cool. Yeah, we've introduced a, a number of nominated awards. So we used to have the Industry Service Award, um, and we still have that. Um, that's been in place from the, the Indies first year. Um, we've added three new ones to that. So there's the um, yeah True Indie Supporter. Um, so that for retailers or op bar operators or publicans who um, support indie beer. Um, so open for nomination. Anyone loves a good pub or bottle shop that is looking after independent brewers, certainly nominate them. Um, there's the Indie Young Gun of the Year. So people under 35 in the industry who are sort of, you know, really at the forefront of things and dri helping drive the industry forward, um, looking for nominations from them as well. That's a cool idea. I like the sound of that. Jamie Cook, thank you for being on the podcast. I'm sorry I took an hour and 30 of your time, but very, very grateful. Cheers, mate. No problem. <laughs> What an absolute legend that guy is. I really hope you enjoyed that interview. I certainly enjoyed the opportunity to spend some time with Jamie and learn some really valuable lessons for our brewery. If you enjoy the podcast, please remember to leave us a review on the podcast app or iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And I will see you next week with an interview with the legend Hendo where we're going to be talking through quality in breweries. See you then.